0: All right, why don't you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, please. 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to look at um, verse 11 through 13. And the message entitled, Living, Knowing that Jesus is Coming. What a great topic for the uh, New Year's coming up. You know, sometimes um, people uh, get caught up in different things, even believers. And uh, they kind of just uh, start saying, well, um, I hope the Lord can come back right now. You know, I haven't gotten married. I haven't had kids. I I haven't done this. I haven't done that. What could be more important than the coming of the Lord for his church? (laughs) Or the second coming? Nothing at all. Peter uh, stirred up in pure mind the believer here, reminding them of uh, three reasons for the delay of the Lord. And and he gives us that in in chapter 3, verse 8 through 9. It says that God is not bound by time, first of all, in verse 8. Second of all, God is not bound by human imperfection in verse 9, and also God is not bound by his wrath, in verse 9 also at the end. And then Peter also guaranteed the coming of Jesus, in verses verse 10, identifying it as the day of the Lord, that's characterized by the certainty of that day, in the first portion of 10, the overview of that day in the middle, and the results of that day at the end of verse 10. I mean, he's just concentrating, because remember, Second Peter, the best way to remember is the heritage of the believer in chapter one, the heretic in the church in chapter two, and the hope of his coming. So between your heritage and the hope of his coming, you got a lot of heretics. All right? Best way to remember Second Peter. Now Peter then turns to the practical exhortation of living up to what one believes regarding the coming of Jesus and the ultimate dissolution of all things at the end of the millennial after the white throne judgment in verses 11 down to 16. Here in verse 11 to 13, by way of exhortation, Peter gives three marks that are to be pressed in the life of the believer in view of the final Holocaust. Let me read verse 11 through 13 here, chapter 3. He says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, Peter gives us these three marks that are to be present. In the life of the believer, in view of this final Holocaust. First, in verse 11, the believer verifies what he believes by his character. Character. That's a dirty word today. Never hear it. Second, verse 12, the believer longs for what uh, he believes, evident by his commitment. And then, thirdly, in verse 13, the believer is sure about what he believes by his settled. Confidence. He begins with 11. The believer validates what he believes by his character. Notice here in verse 11, Peter declared that if a person believes something to be true, they will live conformity to what they believe. It's just simple. 2 and 2 is 4. It's never 5. Listen to the words. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be? He indicates this is a logical, rational conclusion. The word, therefore, means the sum total of what precedes. This is the only thing you can conclude. In view of the fact that all these things will be dissolved, the millennial heavens and earth, after the white throne judgment, the word dissolved there in the context means that which is uh, uh, to be loosened, undone, dissolved, unbound, compacted together. All that we see, the word is used two other times in verse 10 and 12. But notice he indicates that the believer will be a different kind of person than others. Again, he's talking to believers. The phrase, what manner, has the idea of a sense of quality and means literally of what country. It's used of Jesus when he muzzled the wind in the storm in Galilee. It says, what manner of man is this in Mark 8.27 and Luke 7.39. It is used for God's love that we are called the sons of God in 1 John 3.1. What manner of love is this? It's not from the earth. The whole implication being that it is foreign to the norm of the world. Notice the responsibility is for every believer without exception. We all have the same uh, manual, the same instructions. Nobody has a different Bible. Nobody has an inferior salvation. We're all called to the same kingdom. We've all been saved under the same Lord. We all have the same Holy Spirit. We all have the same mind of Christ. There's no excuses. The word ought there indicates obligation, necessity of duty, sometimes um Translated, must. It's used for the necessity of being saved only under the name of Jesus Christ in Acts 4.12. No other name. You must be saved. The tense is the indicative, present, active, ongoing, continuously. If we really believe this, it should have an effect on how you and I live. If you believe that a car is going to hit you, you jump out of the way. You don't sit there and Wait to find out. 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. So when we were apart from Christ, we lived a one-way street. We saw only the physical. All of a sudden, you're born again. You see a two-way street, and there's a physical and a spiritual world. And you're very aware of both of them. Notice in verse 11 that Peter declared that if a person believes God will one day put an end to all this physical world, then the believer is to be an example towards man and God. See, these are logical, rational conclusions based on the information that God has given us by revelation. Listen to his word in holy conduct and godliness. The earthly relationship with our fellow man is mentioned first, as we are created by God for community. The outward evidence is indicated by in holy conduct. Holy hagios, it means to be set apart, to be sacred. Holy, sanctification, saint is the same root word. Conduct means a manner of life, our behavior, our deportment. The outward evidence is not an act, but a genuine life belief. See, when you first got saved, if you're a Christian, your friends thought you smoked a big one. Or they thought that you're into one more little, one of your things. But the longer they looked and it didn't change, then they started thinking, what happened? Because people go from things to things, right? This is brought out by the gospel message. Lived out by demonstrating the reality of the gospel message to others. So in other words, you might be the only gospel people ever read. As they look at your life. The word is in the plural. Indicating a variety of behaviors on earth. In other words, the private and public conversation display of life that each of us display to the people around us, either believers or non-believers. The places we go, the entertainment we go to, the things that we are involved, all this is implied. I used to be a non-believer. I used to be dead spiritually, so I did certain things. Now I'm alive. I do other things that I don't do other things that I used to. And people scratch their head. Why not? The heavenly relation with our Savior is mentioned second. But remember, the parallel one with the community here on earth is dependent upon the vertical first. Though he gets in reverse order, it's always based on on the divine. If I'm not right with God, I'll never be right with you. Impossible. The inward reality is indicated by the word godliness. It means piety, a life devoted to please God. This being the result of the new birth. Through the gospel. This is also in the plural. Literally in holy forms of behavior and godly deeds. Godliness is the manifestation of the new nature. God says that he died for the ungodly. I presume you qualify. And because you were ungodly one time and you repented, then you have the capacity to be godly. It's because you got squared away with the vertical. God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness And 2 Peter 1.3 says. Every believer, whatever God allows, whatever God brings into your life, whatever test, whatever things that he permits, he equips you to pass the test. It's just like teachers. They give you a say, listen, Friday I'm going to give you a test. And you've sat there all week long and you've got all the material. You've got the lectures, you've got the notes, you've got the books, everything else. And you flunked the test. You have no excuse. You deserve that F. So in other words, God prepares me. If I flunk it, it's my fault. Not God's. A believer can never say, I cannot. All a believer can say, I will not. Remember that. We're to cultivate godliness being accountable to God. Second Peter chapter one, verse six to seven. And godliness should be the evidence of our true character dealing with attitude of heart. Because God sees the heart. We just look at the outside. But the focus is always the heart. That's why when we get rewarded in the Bema Seat of Christ as believers, God's not going to reward you or I for how much we've done or what we've done. He's going to reward me why and how I did it. The motive of my heart. Did I do it to be seen of men? Or did I do it because I love God and the persons? He looks at the heart. Henry M. Stanley found Livingston in Africa and lived with him for some time. Here's his testimony, quote, I went to Africa as prejudiced as the biggest atheist in London, but there came for me a long time for reflection. I saw the solitary old man there and asked myself, how on earth does he stop here? Is he cracked or what? what? What is it that inspires him? For months after we... Met, I found myself wondering at the old man carrying out all that was said in the Bible. Leave all things and follow me. But little by little, his sympathy for others became contagious. My sympathy was aroused, seeing his piety, seeing gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, and how he went about his business. I was converted by him, although he had not tried to do it. You see, too many people say they're Christians today, and they look more like crispy critters than Christians. And everybody's a Christian, but yet their Christianity doesn't line up with scripture. You see, the plumb line is the word of God. If you're a duck, you better quack. If you're a bird, you should fly. If you're a Christian, you should be like Christ. It's just simple. The plumb line. If we believe Jesus is coming and we'll do away with this world as we know it, our life conduct changes then. That's the first thing that we understand when we first hear the gospel. We realize that he came not only the first time and he saved us through a sacrifice, but we know he's coming the second time to set up the kingdom, right? And therefore, our life reflects what we believe. We don't do these things as sinners do for the eye of man or for self-gain. But we do it because we know that God sees all things. And so our life has changed. Some of us lived a lifestyle that uh, was not pleasing to God. And so we don't live that way anymore. We don't take drugs. We don't get drunk. We don't run around and play musical bets, All that kind of stuff. We've lived a whole different life now. Paul the Apostle tells Corinthians, some of you were fornicators, adulterers, sodomites, and feminists, but now you are cleansed. Now you are washed. Now you are justified, Jesus Christ. Whoa. Transformation. We don't take advantage of people, manipulate them the way we used to. Somebody new is ruling really my life. We don't partake of the things that the world does. Not because we think we're better, but because we know it's not unpleasing to God. And so we're under new management. Never should a Christian communicate to a person that they are better than another. But simply that they're sinners saved by grace and that God can save them and forgive them also. Paul says, present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not fashioned to this world system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, the perfect will of God, in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Living sacrifice. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Colossians 4, 6. And so the greatest thing we can do is to reflect upon this year. Is how, has, how, how have we lived? how can we better live for Christ? You know, the whole nation was freaking out this year before election. And we got some relief, and we got a window time. It's only mercy, ladies and gentlemen. The Antichrist is still coming. They're still going to go to one world government. So God has given us a window time as Americans, as a church. So we should reflect upon this year. How is it I can serve him better? How is it I can be more like him? Praying for others, taking every opportunity. The believer validates what he believes by his character in view of his coming. And the coming Holocaust. If you really believe it's going to happen, then it's going to affect your life completely. Notice secondly, he says the believer longs for what he believes. Evident by his commitment in verse 12. Peter revealed the commitment of the believer by living with a constant hope. Listen to the words. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. He pointed out not only the daily anticipation of the believer for the coming of Jesus, but the confident daily vigilance of that day. How are you looking for Jesus? Like this? Yeah, he's coming. Or like this. Remember the first time your parents left you at home all alone? And they said, don't go out and don't jump on the bed back and forth. Don't break nothing. And they said, we'll be back in an hour. And you did all kinds of stuff. Then five minutes before the hour, you're looking out the window, right? That's the way you should be looking for Jesus. I'm surprised he hasn't come before I started. The word looking means expect, to wait, to watch, to expect vigilance. The word is used of Zacchaeus as he was looking down, looking for the coming of Messiah in Luke one twenty one. It's used of Cornelius waiting for the arrival of Peter to preach the gospel in Acts 10.24. He was waiting, he was anticipating, he had sent the messengers. He knew he was coming. The word is a participle present act of the believers engaged in mind, heart, and soul, longing for that day. Some of you that are married, especially you ladies. You dream, you, you long, you couldn't wait for that day when you walked down the aisle. Seemed like an eternity, right? You look forward to it. That's the way we should be looking for the coming of Jesus because we're his bride. He comes as a thief in the night to the world. Matthew 24, 36 and 43. Not for us see, he pointed out not only the confident visions that day, but the practical participation till that day. Notice the word hastening. It means desire earnestly or being diligent, but with the idea of involvement. So you're not just passive, but you're involved with this word. It's Jesus Zacchaeus who made haste to come down from the tree in Luke 19:5. 5. Zacchaeus didn't just... Longed for Jesus, but he came down to Jesus. The word appears six times in the New Testament. All involved, active involvement, personal responsibility. Some teach that the idea here is to cause that day or the kingdom to come more quickly. In other words, that we're going to bring it in. This is absurd. God knows the day and the hour already. He has already uh, taken human Events and activities that will be fulfilled and no one can hurry the coming of Christ. Nobody. And yet some people today teach in the church that we're going to settle, we're going to set the kingdom. We're going to establish the kingdom. And if we do, that was one of the main things for the um, big thrust of the, of evangelism after World War II. Because the Bible said that the kingdom must first be preached to the whole, to all nations. And so that thrust the evangelical community to go throughout the world to preach the gospel so we can hurry and help Jesus come. Good intentions, but absolutely unbiblical. He'll be right on time. He won't be late. Now, the Muslims do believe they can speed up the day of the Mahadi or the Amman if they will destroy every Jew from the face of the earth. But our Bible doesn't teach that. That we can hurry Jesus from coming back. Not at all. The word here is a participle, present act of the believer. As we have seen, is to be involved in living out this faith towards man before God. The believer will preach the gospel. The believer will be praying for the unsaved. You know, there's a friend that I prayed for 40 years. Three years ago, he got saved. I visited him. I prayed for him. 40 years. My son walked away from God. Prayed for him 16 years. But let me tell you, not everybody makes it back. Don't give me the prodigal son. The prodigal son was never born again. Completely out of context. The prodigal is a sinner. We use the word prodigal as one who is born and he leaves. Study the context. Most preachers and teachers get an F on the prodigal. <laughs> Very few make it back, ladies and gentlemen. God's grace. Notice Peter calls the day the day of God. The phrase is synonymous with the kingdom age, the millennial. This indicates the day when Jesus, who is God, will reign Over the nation of Israel, those who did not take the mark of the beast will enter into the kingdom as the sheep and the goats are judged in Matthew 25. He will judge the nations how they treated the Jew. There will be longevity once again. People will live long. Isaiah says if a child dies at 100 years, he dies young. But there will still be sin, death, though Satan will be bound. And wherever there's sin, there's always death. And then they have to accept the Lord. They will live like you and I are. We, the church, will be glorified, reigning. The kingdom's for Israel. The Gentiles will serve Israel. The church is glorified. It reigns with Christ. We're his bride. Notice Peter reveal... That the commitment of the believers to live with vigilant, expect- vigilant expectation and ongoing commitment here to the gospel is due to knowing the world will come to an end by a three-fold description. So people have all kinds of things. Well, this is gonna happen. You got Russia going on right now, and you've got, you know, Syria, you've got all these things going on, and everybody has their own ideas, the Bible says and tells exactly what's gonna happen to this physical world. Man's not going to destroy it. God is. It's his earth. Because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Three descriptions. First, he declared the heavens will be dissolved. The word dissolved means to loosen, to undo. Anything tied or compacted together, and it's in the future. The world, or the word here is translated melt in verse 10. The word is translated dissolve as in this verse in verse 12. Second, or the description is what will happen to the heavens. The word heavens is in the plural. It literally means the vaulted expanse, literally the stretched out space as in verse 10, distinguishing three heavens. The first heaven is the atmosphere where the birds fly, Genesis 1, 6-8 tells us that. The second heaven is the stellar heaven where the stars and the planets exist, we call it space, Genesis 1, 6-8. And the third heaven is where God dwells, 2 Corinthians 12, 4, Paul says, I knew a man in Christ about 13 years ago, whether in the body or the body, I don't know, but he was caught up to the third heaven, paradise, and there are things not lawful to be uttered. This is where God dwells. Notice. Second he declares the heavens will be on fire. The process that these heavens are dissolved. And dissembled. Brought to nothing. Is by fire. It simply means. To burn with fire. You know heat is an incredible thing. If it's hot enough it just makes everything liquid. The word appears six times in the New Testament, once in this letter. This could be describing the dividing of the atom, even as in verse 10 it speaks about that. The description is very, very clear. It could be. The structure of the atom should not hold, uh, should not hold together by Coulomb's law of positive charges. They're supposed to be repelling each other, but they don't. They hold together. The answer is Colossians 1.17. All things consist in Him, Christ. He holds everything together. Jesus could just say, release, and it blows up. That's what happens with the atom. You split the atom, it blows up. Simple. Now notice there in verse 12, He third declared the elements will melt with fervent heat. All the things that compose the heavens will liquefy by the intense temperature. The word melt means to make liquid. As I said earlier. Indicating the result. And is found only this time. In the New Testament. The phrase fervent heat. Means simply an intense scorching. A temperature that consumes all material things. Nothing can stand. This form of the word appears only one other time. In verse 10. This is the reason Believers live, preach, and pray according to the gospel due to the fact that only the believer knows this world is going to go up in smokes. We know what's going to happen to this material world. The world hypothesizes, has their opinion, their ideas. But you and I can be certain of what's going to happen to this place because we have God's revelation. commitment. There was a father who took his son and he had to drop him off at school. And um, he was about 12 years old and he said, you know, don't go anywhere. I'll come and pick you up. You get out at 4, I'll be here. And the father got carried away. He had some business to do and and it just passed him and all of a sudden it was about 7 o'clock and he freaked out. Realizing that everybody would be gone by 5 o'clock and his son would be there alone. And as he drove up, he just looked and his son was just sitting there. And his father goes up and says, you know, son, I'm sorry. this Were you worried? He says, no, dad. Why? He says, because you're my dad. You're committed to me. So he trusted his dad. He knew with confidence. And that's the way as we live our lives, Regardless of what the world says, regardless of what our emotions or feelings are, we know what the Word of God says. We trust God's revelation as the absolute truth, absolute truth. Most of the parables of Jesus, you know, deal with vigilance about His coming. He gives many parables. Um, The steward who began to beat the manservants in Luke chapter 12, 45 through 48. And then he, to him who, who did things worthy of strife were given less. And the one who did less, but he knew his master's will, was given for more strife. Because of those much is given, much more is required, right? That's a contrast to one who knows his master's will, the Christian, and the one who doesn't know, which is the non-believer. The parable is very, very clear. For the grace of God, Titus two eleven through 14 says, that brings salvation appear appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldliness, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the rapture, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we, he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special ze- people, zealous for good works. And so God has put this hope in our heart, this desire we didn't have this before we were christians this is the result of the gospel the new birth the key characteristics of sinners who has a sinner who has repented is transformation from the inside out they become a new creation second corinthians 5:17 all things pass away everything becomes new you remember in your day in your life a day when you turned around when you heard the gospel and god just changed your life I remember 1973 when God saved me. He messed my life up for good. Complete change. And this is what God does, regardless of who you are, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what you've been into, no matter what's been into you. God doesn't say, well, I can only save those people if they only did these kind of things. He saves all. We used to live in darkness, now in the light. All that we are, all that we do is a result of Jesus Christ. And so, as we look at this year, once again, it's so important, our commitment to Christ. We're committed in the church because we're committed to Christ, because the people of God are are the church. The building in the church is the people, those who are born again. And so the believer longing for the kingdom to come, knows that it will take place. Therefore, they live as the people of God. Because they're reading the word. They're studying the word. They understand what the Bible says. So they're praying for the kingdom of God to come. They're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness in Matthew 6.33. Knowing that people can only enter the kingdom through the gospel, through the name of Jesus Christ. It cannot be altered. It cannot be watered down. It cannot be made wider than that. Though the world wants to make it wider and the, and the emergent church and seeker-friendly wants to make it wider, you can't make it. Though the Catholic church may want to make it light, you can't make it wider. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father by me. And if you try to make it any wider, then you're an enemy of the kingdom of God. You just can't do that. And so we pray for the lost. Those in authority. First Peter, first Timothy two, one through four. The kings and emperors and, and those who are in authority that we may live peaceable lives, that they might get saved. God saved Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was a great example. Hard not to crack, but he got the message. Jude twenty. To 23 there's only one chapter that says, but you beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of god looking for the mercy of our lord jesus christ unto eternal life and on some have compassion sinners making a distinction but others save with fear pull them out of the fire hating even the garment defiled by the flesh so in other words you want to use wisdom you come out of the drug world don't go around the candy man right away. You fill in the blank. And when you're dealing with people that are the lifestyle that you came out of, you be careful, you don't get too close or you get burned. So you use common sense, use wisdom. you don't get cocky, you don't get overconfident. You keep the Lord between you and Satan, and you stay in the word of God. And so the believer longs for what he believes evident. By his commitment. How's your commitment to Christ? How'd you do this year? It's church, heads, I go to church, tails, I stay home. Heads, I read the Bible today, tails I don't. See your commitment to Jesus Christ, not to any person. Notice 30 the believers sure about. It. What he believes by his settled confidence. In verse 13, Peter based his confidence in the prophetic promise of God. Listen to the words. Nevertheless, we according to his promise. This is not man's words. The reputation of God is at stake here. God is all knowing, all powerful, all present. He is perfect in every one of his attributes. God is holy, just, true, therefore He cannot lie. Numbers 23:19 says, "That I may not understand how God can do certain things is my problem, not God's. He's the epitome of perfection. The promises of God cannot be thwarted, nor can they fail. They will come to pass. He promised the Messiah. Through a woman, without the participation of a man, he fulfilled it. The promises in Genesis three fifteen, Matthew one twenty three. A virgin shall bear a son, a child. Call his name Emmanuel. Fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. For God, nothing's impossible. Joseph, fear not to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in hers of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Promised the time of the Gentiles would last till the second coming. So he gave to Nebuchadnezzar that vision the head of gold, Babylon, the arms and shoulders of silver, Medo Persia, the belly of brass, Greece, the legs of iron, Rome. And then there's kind of a prophetic clock that stops there, and you have the church age. And when the churches are removed, then you'll have the ten toes of iron and clay, the ten nation confederacy that will give. Their power over to the Antichrist for the tribulation and great tribulation. God revealed all of that before those emp- empires even came to be. We can look back and see it perfectly. Man can't reveal the future, only God can. Notice still in 13 Peter bases his confidence in the promise of the eternal state. This is the context here. Look for new heavens. And a new earth. He declared the believer looks forward to these two things. New heaven and new earth. The word new, (kainos) means new in quality. Not a renovation as in the thousand year reign that Isaiah 6517 and 18 speaks about. During the thousand year, God is going to just renovate the earth. And all the animals will not be fierce anymore. Be like, the, But there will still be sin and death. But at the end of the thousand years, after the white throne judgment, this is the kinos, This is absolutely new quality. It's not just going to be renovated. It's going to be completely new. The eternal state is mentioned by Isaiah in Isaiah 65, 20 through 25. In 66, verse 22, and many other portions, John confirms the disappearance of the millennial earth and heavenly order. Listen to him in Revelation twenty-one-one. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away after the white throne judgment. That is right there, the context. John specifies the timeline by telling us that the earth and heaven fled away at the end of the thousand years in Revelation 20, verse 11. So we are giving all the time posts so that we can locate all these things. He does not give the particular details of the new heaven and earth here in his epistle, the apostle Peter, but John does. In Revelation 21, 1 and 2, it says that during the millennium there will be vast fishing in the Dead Sea is healed. Ezekiel forty seven ten, Zachariah fourteen eight. That's during the millennial kingdom. The present sea is necessary to cool the planet. Rain, food, and the purging of all the trash and the sewage. It occupies two thirds of the earth. Water. In the eternal state, there will be no need for the sea at all. John saw a city. Listen to him in Hebrews 12 or Revelation twenty one two. He says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. It is a literal city spoken about in the New Testament. Abraham, by faith, dwelt in the land promised as in the foreign country. For he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In Hebrews 12.8-10. God has revealed this from the very beginning. Abraham the patriarch way back then. Hebrews thirteen, thirteen 13-14 says, Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. The new Jerusalem. See, we reign with him through the millennial kingdom, but we will rule in the eternal state. We'll be with him forever and ever in that new state, the eternal state. The origin of the city is the vision provides coming down out of heaven from God, Revelation twenty one two says. The city is seen descending out of the heaven from God. He dwells in the third heaven. Some believe this city will be suspended over the millennial earth and be the dwelling of Christ and his church. I don't necessarily see that, but some believe that. We'll find out. The purpose of the city is declared, listen to Revelation 21.2, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You have this parallel all the way through. Christ and his bride. As Babylon presented a system of people and cities, so the new city is the abode of the church. The city is symbolic of the bride waiting and prepared for a specific day. In a specific person, even as Jesus said in John 14, 1 through 3. Notice Peter bases his confidence in the promise of the eternal state of God's relationship with man. Listen to his words, in which righteousness dwells. He is declaring God will literally live among his people as before the fall in unbroken fellowship without sin. In contrast, to the millennial kingdom. Because during the millennial kingdom there still will be sin. How do we know that? Because people will die. Death is the result of sin. Simple. The phrase righteousness dwells in its broadest sense is to be as we ought to be in that abiding condition. John confirms this in Revelation 21.3 when he says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the eternal state. We will spend all eternity. People say, Well, I don't know if I want to live for eternity. You, you don't have any choice. All you can choose is where are you going to spend eternity? Heaven or hell? You ever buy a house? Was the key thing? Location, location, location. What kind of neighborhood you want for eternity? Heaven or hell? It's your choice. God doesn't decide that you do. The word for tabernacle is used for the incarnation of Jesus in John one fourteen. The references to his people, Laos, the plural indicating Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. John tells us God will remove the former things. Therefore shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. See a lot of times people say. Well you know. There's, you know the, it's not the millennial. It's the eternal state. When this happens. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isaiah 25.8. There should be no more death. Revelation 20. Verse 14. And others. There should be no more sorrows, Isaiah sixty five nineteen. There will be no more crying or pain. Isaiah tells the child, as I said earlier, will die at a hundred years old and say that he died young. <laughs> In the simpler form of the heat blast, along. Well, that was dropped on Hiroshima. It caused the greatest number of deaths. It is no small wonder when we consider the force of intensity of that blast. The temperature at the center thereof reached momentarily an official estimated million degrees centigrade. Three times the temperature of the sun and 10,000 times the temperature of the surface of the sun. You know what happened at Hiroshima. Everything melted down. God commanded, write the record of the eternal order as genuine and true for all who would read in the future. In Revelation 21, 5 through 6, the completion of the new work. And he said to me, it is done there in verse 6. It's done. The proclamation, it is finished. Same as he said at the cross. For justification. The identity of the one who did it, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. The person is Jesus Christ, Revelation eight. The invitation is to all. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. The same promise is given by Jesus on several occasions. He excluded no one. Whosoever will. Whoever is lost is lost by the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because God rejected them. It is God alone who can justify us. It is God alone who has made the way for salvation It is God alone who knows the end from the beginning. And it is God's word alone that we can trust, nothing else. And so, as God has given us another year, maybe, what are we going to do with it? As husbands and wives, as singles, wherever you go to church, are you involved? Are you growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are you developing? Are you maturing? Are you serving your Lord? Are you part of the church? Not just, are you the church or do you just go to church? There's a big difference. And so, the believer is sure about what he believes by a settled confidence. You're a light. You don't take that light and put it under a bushel. You put it high so that the light can reflect and people can see from that dark world. God could have used angels and been more effective than to use me. But God has chosen to use you and myself in this dark world. And I tell you, God judged us the last eight years. Okay? Many people got mad at me when I said that. Now I know I was right. (laughs) But now, God has been merciful to us. He's given us a window time. Don't think that the Antichrist is not coming. He's still coming. Don't think that Jesus isn't coming for his church in the rapture. He's still going to come. So, what are you going to do with the window time that God's given to you now? You're going to use it for your benefit? Over the benefit of the kingdom of God. That's the bottom line. Soon everything will be gone. And all that's going to matter is what's done for Jesus. The rest is insignificant. I pray the Lord speak to your heart. You have two days left in this year. It is possible that one of you in here, or two of you, will not see January 1st. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I would not put it off. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Tomorrow's promised to no one. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, that you would just deal with our hearts, and we thank you for just your mercy over our lives, your grace for the years of your faithfulness to us, 36 years of all that you've done, Lord, and Lord, we know is just your mercy and your grace. And so, Lord, I pray right now for those that are here that you would speak to their heart if there's anyone here or over the internet that doesn't know you, Lord, that they would call upon your name, that you would forgive them and just transform them, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins right where you sit, here or over the internet, wherever you're at. You don't need to get up and do an altar call. I don't have anything in altar calls. I just don't do them. Because if you're sincere, He can transform you right where you sit. There's no problem with God. If you see yourself as a sinner in need of grace because you are headed for hell, you're under God's wrath, that's God's illuminating conviction that shows your need of a Savior. And if you believe that Jesus is that Savior who died in your place, then you can call upon Him and be saved right now. This is your prayer to Him, not to us. And He's going to save you right now. This is your prayer. Father, I come to You in Jesus' name. I ask You to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.